only you know the bigger life for you. It's not something where it's like you can plug it in and it will give everybody the same answer because that doesn't make any sense. We're all so different. You have to have the answer that's right for you. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome to the Kathy Heller podcast. This show is meant to be a guide for you. I want to be that mentor who can hold your hand through this journey. I know that there are so many twists and turns in navigating not only what is happening in our mind, but also understanding strategically how we want to get from where we are to where we want to go. In the show, we're going to talk not only about how we can start to become aware of what are the subconscious things that are holding us back and how we can instead choose thoughts that are actually going to propel us forward. But in addition to changing the landscape internally, we are going to talk about the strategies that actually will help you to build a profitable business, getting paid to be you. Because when you have a business where you do what you love, you never really have to have that sense of work because it's a pleasure, because it's joy. And really, I want you to have the most abundant life. I want you to have the kind of life that you love waking up to every day that you don't feel like you need a vacation from. So together on the show, every single episode, I want to be your friend. I want to be your mentor. I want to show you what is it that I think has really been insightful, been helpful? What are the tools and strategies? What are the mindset shifts that have helped me? And what are the things that have helped my guests to get to where they are? How can we together sort of cross this river to the most fulfilling life where we show up and we feel like we are living into our potential and having the most gorgeous, beautiful experience? Because after all, that is what we all desire. We're all craving to have the most joyful, beautiful life And I really believe that we can design that and that we can experience a life that we just absolutely love. And not only will we enjoy it, but it will be a possibility for other people. It will show other people what's there for them. And then maybe together, each one of us, by being the happiest versions of ourselves and being the most fulfilled versions of ourselves, we will help other people to reach for that higher branch and to find that in their own life. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. I'm so excited. I have so much good stuff coming up for you guys. I just interviewed Andrew McCarthy. So stay tuned. That episode is coming up. That was so much fun and kind of surreal as a kid who grew up in the eighties. Um, and today Gretchen Rubin is back on the show and she has a new book coming out. We had such a lovely chat. I'm looking forward to sharing that with you today. Before we do, I want to let you know that the pre-sale ends tomorrow to my signature program, Abundant Ever After. If you want to join this program or find out more about it, you can go to kathyhoa.com slash join. And until tomorrow, it is on pre-sale, which is a very nice discount. Today, you're in for a treat because Gretchen Rubin is back for a second time, as I said. She's been a New York Times bestselling author five times. She's a top podcaster, an entrepreneur, a speaker. She's the founder of Happiness Project and one of the most influential and thought-provoking observers of happiness and human nature. You may have read one of her popular books like Happier at Home, The Happiness Project, Outer Order, Inner Calm, The Four Tendencies. And she has a new book that just came out this week. It's called Life in Five Senses, How Exploring the Senses Got Me Out of My Head and Into the World. And it explores her path towards a life of more energy, happiness, creativity, luck, and love by tuning into the five senses. 
She reveals so many powerful discoveries about how simple things we take for granted can impact our happiness and our sense of purpose. It's a fun and enlightening read, so I highly recommend you get yourself a copy. You may also want to listen to her insanely popular podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, where she discusses happiness and good habits with her sister, Elizabeth Kraft. They give fresh and practical solutions for creating happier lives, and they answer questions from listeners, and they interview amazing guests like Malcolm Gladwell, Matt Damon, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and many more. The podcast has over 220 million downloads as of last year, and it's safe to say that it's really making a difference. I love talking to Gretchen because she has a beautiful sense of wonder and curiosity, which has led her to creating books and her podcast, and she's a good example of what's possible when you're allowing yourself to follow that inkling. And there's a lot of good concrete advice that she has to give today. So you can start implementing things right away. Without further ado, please welcome Gretchen Rubin. Hi, Gretchen. I'm so glad that you came back. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so happy to get the chance to talk to you again. Your work has been, it's so well received because it's so needed. And everybody is such a doer that we forget that we came to this life to be happy and to try to be more present. And I love your newest book. And I was like, just getting familiar with it. And I was so happy that you found yourself on this quest. What made you start to look into this particular nuance of well-being? Well, it came from a very ordinary moment in my life. I am a person who sort of tends toward pink eye. And I had a particularly persistent case. So I ended up going to the eye doctor. And after my checkup, he said, well, make sure you come in for your regular checkup too. Because as you know, you're at greater risk for losing your vision. And I was like, wait, what? I don't know that. What are you talking about? And he said, oh, yeah, well, you're extremely nearsighted. And that means that you're at greater risk for having a detached retina. So if that starts to happen, we want to catch it right away. And by chance, I had a friend who had just lost some vision from a detached retina. So that felt like a very real possibility to me. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Okay, that's so stressful. Yeah. So yeah, I was sort of stunned because he said it so casually, like, wear your seatbelt. And I was like, oh my God. So I walk out onto the street. I live in New York City. So I was just walking home. And my first thought was, you know, I didn't see a single thing on my walk here. All this is all around me, but I am taking it all for granted. And of course, you know, intellectually that at any time you could lose anything. And of course, I know that if I lost one or more of my senses, I could still have a rich, fulfilling life. But still, it was just a thought of thinking of losing it made me realize how much I was taking it for granted. And I wasn't taking advantage of it. And then like with that realization, it was as if every knob in my brain got jammed up to 11. And I felt like I could see everything with crystal clarity. I could hear every single noise picked out. I live in New York City. It's very smelly. I could smell so many smells as I was walking through the streets. It was like this psychedelic experience. I've never experienced anything like it. And it just showed me all of this is happening all the time, all around me. And I'm just stuck in my head in this fog of preoccupation. I'm missing it all. Then when I got home, I realized my daughters look taller. Like how long it had been since I actually looked at them or like my husband, like he's just like the wallpaper background of my life even though, you know, he's the most important person to me. And I just thought I really need to reconnect to the world. And the way that I can do that is through my five senses, because I'm always, I always need the practical way. I always need like, tell me like, what can I do with my conscious thoughts and actions to achieve these transcendent aims? And I realized, okay, the five senses can be the path through which 
I can have this richer, deeper, more appreciation for everything that I was Uh, taking for granted. Absolutely. I was just talking to Dr. Rick Hansen. I don't know if you guys Mm. are friendly or yeah, Yeah. he's he's such a wonderful person. And he was telling me about this Buddhist proverb about these ghosts with these insatiable bellies. And all they do is crave. They have insatiable craving. So they go from one thing right to the next thing because they're never satisfied. They never have any feeling of satisfaction. And that's literally hell on, it's like a hell, right? And so he said, when I think about, because he used to live in LA growing up, he's like, you know, not to generalize, but just right. to get the point across. He's like, I, I see a lot of people moving so fast that they're like these ghosts with these insatiable bellies because they don't stop to take in the good, to uh-huh. fill up, to actually right. realize that there are moments and more moments where there's a feeling of satisfaction. There's a feeling of being satisfied when you look out your window. There's a feeling of being satisfied and really present to so many things in life. And as he said it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is just like really important. Like we could basically do an entire podcast, like episode after episode could just be on that. And then I saw what you were writing your next book about and, and what the book is about. And I said, oh my gosh. So let's go deeper into what did you then do? Like, it's one thing to have that idea, like, oh, it'd be nice to be more present. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But then what practice or what class did you take or what did you start to do so that you can actually integrate that? Yeah. Well, I did a lot of different things because you're right. It's one thing to want to change. And it's another thing even to feel change, but it's like to actually change is hard. So I did a lot of different things. So I did, the more we know, the more we notice. So I took some classes. I love the sense of smell. So I took two perfume classes and I also took, I went to Flavor University, which is super fun. I would do things where sometimes you can, you know, become more aware of a sense by overwhelming it. So I did things like a sensory bath or going to like immersive Van Gogh where you're really like, you know, it's really overwhelming a sense. Then I did things where I would deprive a sense because that's another way to sort of get yourself more attuned to a sense. So I did things like a sensory deprivation tank, though these days they call them a sensory enhancement tank, which I think is very, you know, on trend. I did the thing dining in the dark where you go to a restaurant and they put a mask on you. So you're eating without seeing. Oh my gosh. Super interesting. One of the most ambitious things that I did is um, I am so incredibly fortunate. I live within walking distance of the Metropolitan Museum. And yet, again, that was something I was taking for granted. I live so close and yet I I almost never went. And so I thought I'm going to go every day for a year, every day that I'm in New York City that the Met is open. Yeah. And also, you know, I am very interested in like repetition and familiarity. Like novelty is great and we all love novelty, but I'm also very interested in like the quality of repetition and how things change over time and with greater familiarity. So I I was also interested in that. And I thought, well, how I'll try to experience the Met with all five senses and how would that change over time? What would I learn about the Met? What would I learn about myself? And it was a way to like connect with the sort of treasure trove, right? Literally like right in my front yard. You know, and then a lot of times what I was trying to do was find ways to connect with other people. So often I would think, okay, well, how can I use my sense of taste to connect with people? Or how could beyond just having people over for dinner, which is classic, you know, but what else can you do? Or how do you connect through the sense of smell with other people or your own memories? Like that's one of the things people often talk about it with the sense of smell, but I actually think all five senses can really help connect us to our memories And a lot of times we remember things we don't remember. We just have never kind of tried to evoke it, tried Mm -hmm. to dredge it up from the past. And a lot of times with sensory 
Like if I said to you, okay, Kathy, like what's a junk food that you loved as a kid that your parents would never buy for you? Doritos. Right. Okay. And now you're like <laughs> right there with that Dorito. You don't even have to eat a Dorito. You're like, it just brings back that time. Right. Sure. For me, for me, it was pop tarts or like, did you have like a drink of choice when you were in college, whether it was like sweet tea or white Russian or, you know, what was your drink? Moscow mule. There you go. Right. So, and it's just fun. And one thing that's nice to talk about memories like this, it's like great for like teams or people you don't know very well, because it's very personal and warm, but it's not revealing in a way that can make people uncomfortable. Because sometimes when you're trying to get people to open up, like people don't want to, and you don't want to push somebody in a way that's not appropriate. But a lot of times this, it's like, and then the people that you know, well, like you get to know better because you just get this insight into these sort of funny parts of their past in a way that's really fun. Totally. And it does give you the, I could taste the Doritos and, you know, I can, when you said Pop-Tarts, I could taste the Pop-Tarts. So it's, yeah. it really is fun to revisit. I had my own sort of journey with this in 2007. I started taking classes at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Center and I took classes there for three years. And I remember that same feeling that you're describing where I would walk out of the class and for the first time, it was if, it was if in the Wizard of Oz where they turned the car yes. on in the movie. Great, I was like, great. Great. I was like, oh my gosh, like there is like lavender over here in this part of Westwood. And I hadn't like noticed it and it smells so good. And I didn't, I didn't see the color on the walk sign, just like that red color. Like I'm noticing it. It was just so amazing. And some of the things that they would have us do was like an eating meditation. Like when you actually go to eat the strawberry before you even take a bite of it, like notice how quickly your mouth begins to salivate as you bring it closer to your mouth even. Mm -hmm. And then that's interesting. And then you put it in your tongue and you're like, is it more sweet or more sour? Is there anything bitter about it? Where in your mouth? I mean, my mouth is like salivating as I say it. It's like, it just brings up all of that heightened awareness. And then my teacher would say things like, you know, can you have coffee this week and actually just make a mental note that you will actually be present for the first sip, just the first sip. And you realize how often you're eating or doing or walking and you're just not present. So it's such a beautiful thing that people can go and they can buy this book and it can sort of, you know, really open them up to that. And I'm just curious, like, how have you allowed this to be sustained though? Like, it's one thing to like develop, you know, the beginning of a practice, but it's so easy for that automatic program in your mind to put you back into trance. So when you go into trance, that's what I'm calling like being unconscious, right? Right, right, right. That's a good word for it. Yeah. How do you come back out and be present again? Well, that's a great question. And I think that's the great challenge. Part of my hope about like writing a book about it was that I would be so focused on it so intensely that it would help sort of solidify those habits of the art of noticing. So one thing I still, I love visiting the Met every day that I still do it. So that's one thing. And that's kind of a daily reminder because that really like the whole point of that is just to sort of be present. So I think that's kind of a daily, except Wednesday when the Met is closed, that's kind of a daily reminder of like, okay, let's stay tuned into this kind of wavelength, this kind of physical wavelength. But I also think that it did become a habit. Like I had one of these funny experiences where like I was supposed to meet somebody, but I'm I'm always too early. So I had like 15 minutes to kill. It was very cold out. So I wanted to go inside somewhere. And I went to the Plaza Hotel, you know, which is famous for Eloise, like having her tea party yeah. and everything. And if you go into the Plaza Hotel, there's like all this Eloise stuff. And I hadn't been in there in so long. And so I just went in there and just kind of looked around. And I realized I had been standing there just sort of like rooted in one spot, just looking around for like maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, 
way more than the average person. Like, I'm sure that everybody was like, what is that woman doing? She's not sitting down. She's not looking for somebody. She's just, just looking around. And I realized I just had gotten lost in looking. And I just, the more you look, the more you see, the more, you know, the more you notice. And I was looking for things like, oh, it's so interesting to see those greens juxtaposed. And, oh, it's interesting to see how this drawing of Eloise is slightly different from that drawing of Eloise. I wonder if it's actually the same artist or it's just somebody copying it. And are these people tourists? Or are they from the United States? And and I was just noticing so much. And then, um, so I think it has kind of taken hold. I, I don't, I know that I would not have done that a few years ago, I would have just been like, move along, move along, keep going, keep looking. And I wouldn't have thought like, you could just stop and look. And the more you look, the more you see. Yeah, that's really, really cool. I'm wanting to ask you this question because it's been in the front of my mind a lot, which is, I feel like for a long time, and I think you could relate to this because you're such a good student and you're such an achiever. You've achieved so much success on so many levels. And even before you were in this world of writing books, you were so successful in your own right. And I think what can happen is we become sort of dopamine addicts where we live for like these moments of modulation, you know, where Mm -hmm. like you publish a book or you get into UVA law school or you work for the Supreme Court or like these are the things that we decide are these moments where there's like going to be this happiness. And I think what you're talking about, and you've been talking about this in so many different ways, but what I've been really zeroing in on right now is leaning into the mundane moment and finding the equanimity in a moment where you're present is something greater than dopamine. It's Mm -hmm. actually a feeling of integrating and arriving into what is that actually feels more satisfying than however many reviews something gets or the big sweeping swells of winning an Oscar or whatever people have gone through hoop jumping to get. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you've over time found that well-being moment to moment, because once you've been successful in many, many, many ways, it can become a bar you set for yourself. And you can kind of, it's another way that we miss out on the moments in between when really life is only the moments in between. Mm -hmm. And there is such a beauty to that. Well, it's interesting. Like now that you say that I've never connected these two ideas before, that's very thought provoking. It's reminding me of, of some advice that my father always gives to my sister and me, which is to enjoy the process. And what he means by enjoy the process is like, have fun while it's happening. Don't wait for the ending or the outcome. And what's really powerful about enjoy the process is it makes outcomes less significant because of course you would like for things to go well. You would like for things to succeed, but if you enjoy the process, then it's not as bitter. It's because a lot of times things don't turn out the way we want, you know, they just don't. And a lot of things are outside of our control, but if you enjoy the process, it's like you've had your fun all along. And so it just takes the sting out of outcomes. And I had not thought about it in this way, but it is actually very true because part of enjoying the process is like the process of the day to day up until that time. And so if you're like, my daily experience is satisfying to me, I don't need to wait, you know, for the arrival fallacy, I'll be happy once I get that promotion, I'll be happy once that book hits the shelves. It's you're experiencing it along the way. But I have to say with dopamine, I mean, another thing is if people, sometimes people do want like a little rush of, a, of energy or cheer, they need to kind of give themselves a jolt. 
And one of the really like, uh, there's a lot of healthy ways to turn to our senses to do that. Because it's very easy to reach for kind of an unhealthy treat. And that would be things like doom scrolling, binge watching, maybe like roaming around your kitchen, looking for a crinkly package to graze from. But what I found is that if you need that pick me up feeling like maybe you're bored, maybe you're restless, maybe you just kind of need need a little charge. You can like if you love music, listen to some new music like I love smell. And so I can go like smell a bottle of almond extract or some fresh towels or like lavender. You mentioned lavender. I love the smell of lavender. I can crush some lavender between my fingers. Or if you love touch, like maybe you have therapy dough or maybe you knit and you've got like baskets full of like soft yarn or you've got like a sheepskin or play with some tinfoil. Tinfoil is bonkers. Tinfoil is amazing. Go play with some tinfoil. It is extraordinary. (laughs) And I don't know if this is because it distracts you from kind of that like wanting to graze in the kitchen or if it's just that by over like giving yourself a little bit of a hit, a little bit of a dopamine pleasure rush with another sense, it kind of gives you the satisfaction that you need. I'm not sure what it is, but it seems to work very well. So that is a way that if you feel like, oh, I, I need a little treat. I need a little something. You know, if you love new music, if you listen to new music, that's going to give you that little rush. And yet it's a way that is constructive and healthy yeah. and probably kind of is within your control, whereas sometimes people feel like the sense of taste is something that is hard to manage for them. Yeah. And I love what your dad's advice was about. And I also love that it's true. There are times where you do want a little boost. I mean, I have like kombucha sitting on my there you desk go. because like I had water earlier and like this always gives me a little boost and that's, it's okay. And it's good to find healthy ways because the yes. scrolling won't give you any of the things that you think it will. And in the book, you talk about some of the cutting edge science that shows us how these aren't just things that feel good to talk about, but there's actually a lot of compelling reason to lean in. Can you share a little bit of what you were finding there that maybe was like kind of a surprise to you or you were really impressed with? Oh my gosh, the research is just so fascinating. There were so many things that just astonished me as I as I got into it. I mean, one of the things that surprised me the most, and again, this is something that you kind of, intel- I think intellectually people would be like, sure, yeah, that's true. But then you really think it through and see it in your own experience. And it's just wild, which is how different my sensory universe universe is from your sensory universe. And so we're walking around, we're in the same place more or less. And it's just very, very different because the brain is a difference detector. It's looking for change because that's danger or opportunity. So it's like, if a rock is flying toward me, I notice that if a rock is on the ground, I don't notice that. But then it comes up in all these sort of less expected ways. Like I live in New York City and I hear sirens all the time. So my brain doesn't tell me about sirens. And I was doing a podcast interview one time and she was like, oh, let's stop right now for that. And I was like, what are you talking about? She goes, don't you hear that siren? The siren was going right in front of my apartment. I just didn't hear it. And she said, oh, yeah, people in New York don't hear sirens. People in L.A., don't hear helicopters. Because again, it's so familiar, the brain takes it up. And we've all experienced this where like you get a dog and all of a sudden you're like, look at all these pet stores and you know pet supply stores in my neighborhood because your brain kept that in the background. But now that it's important that your brain is telling you that you need to know. And another way you experience this is with odor fatigue. So if you are in a house and your house smells very strongly of air freshener or cats or cigarettes, or a certain kind of cleaning supply, or your perfume that you put on twice a day, you'll walk in and you won't smell that because you can't smell your home the way a guest smells it. So a guest will smell something because to them it's new and the brain is saying, hey, 
here's a new thing. You need to know about this. But the person who lived there, their brain isn't going to tell them about that. But of course, if you went away for a while and then you came back, then you would get used to it. But it's just interesting because you think, well, you know, I don't know if you've ever been someplace you're like, oh my gosh, how can they stand this smell? hundred percent. And it's because they're used to it. And like, if you're a barista in a coffee store, you'll get used to it right away or almost right away. Whereas like, if I walk into a coffee store, it would take me a few minutes, but after a few minutes, I also would become unaware of it. But if I walked outside and somebody stuck a cup of coffee under my nose, I would smell it again. Because again, the brain is saying, oh, new information. Let me bring this to your attention. That's interesting. The thing about smell, like with the hearing, I can tune into it. But with smell, you can't. You can't smell it. You like literally, you cannot smell it unless you get that brain. Right? Yeah. The brain is tinkering. The brain is editing. The brain is, my brain is doing it for me. And it's just real, which shows you why it's very important to show consideration for other people. Because if they're complaining about something and you're like, I don't know what the big deal is. It's like, right, it's not a big deal to you. That doesn't mean that for somebody else, this this isn't a really tough situation. Yeah. I have another question for you, which is, you talk about in this book, how this is a path to being happier. And obviously you've been synonymous now for years as somebody who's, and I love, by the way, the way you have gone through your journey, which was never like, look at me, but more like, come with me. Like, hi, I'm a person who I'm also trying to figure this out. Like, I'm not this person who will take you under my (laughs) wing because I have this prescription because I'm the happiest person. And that to me is probably, uh, if I had to point to what I think has made you most successful, it's this very humble, curious, like I'm right there with you. That's those are like the best leaders, by the way. But insofar as you've been on a quest for more enriching moments, more happier moments in your life, how does this stack up? Like you've been trying on so many different things in the history of the, the time you've been on this quest, how does looking into your five senses and, and showing up more with that capacity to tap into those things. How has that made your life happier insofar as it relates to everything else you've tried on? Well, you know, that's so interesting because I was having the feeling and, you know, they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And I think when I had that experience walking home from the eye doctor, I was ready for that because I had started to get a feeling of like, Okay, I've been doing all this work on happiness and human nature, but something's missing. There's a puzzle piece here that's mm. eluding me. And when I look back on my previous work, like in my book, Happier at Home, I did talk about smell. And I wrote a book, Outer Order, Inner Calm, and a lot of that was about like visual noise. And I would use that, that metaphor, visual noise, and talking about like why or- outer order contribute to inner calm. So I can see that there were pieces of it that I was edging up into. I was feeling that they were there but I hadn't seen it as kind of a coherent whole, like a whole aspect that was missing. And that makes sense, I think, because I am somebody who's just very much up in my head. I am in a fog of preoccupation. So it makes sense that it's like, it took me a while. Like, you know, I had to get pretty deep in there before I figured out that that was sort of how to think about that missing piece. And so it's interesting because with the happiness project, it was like an overall framework of how to think about happiness. And then with each book, I've sort of, looked at it with a different spotlight and there's all these different ways you can think about it and tackle it. But I have to say with every book, I'm like, it'll never be this good again. I'll never have a subject as interesting as this one. It's all downhill from here. And then my next book, I'm like, oh no, this is the best one. This book was such a delight. It was just so energizing and fun. And like, there was just kind of a, an immediacy 
that I think that like you were talking earlier about like wanting to have this direct contact and wanting to appreciate the moment. And it's yeah. really that it just enlivened everyday life, not kind of in the long term, which like making deeper relationships, like making deeper relationships is the most important thing you can do. That's number one for sure. But this is kind of satisfying on a different level and a really like hands-on level. Like we get, instantly we go to these like five senses. It's on the tip of your tongue, you know, it's yeah. right. It, yeah. So it really had, did add just a huge element of just sort of vitality. Yeah. I love how much enthusiasm bursts from you when you talk about just, again, like your dad's at the process of even writing the yeah. book. That, yes. That's how you know there's something in there for the mm-hmm. audience too, yeah. because you were just enjoying it so much. And just in case people, for whatever reason, are not really familiar with who you were before you started writing this book, or so just mm-hmm. in case people didn't hear all the thousands and thousands of pieces of content you put out, I feel like it would be nice to let them in on what was the experience of Gretchen Rubin when you were feeling unhappy just to give them a little because I think we feel sometimes like we don't relate when we feel as though somebody is so many degrees in a different world that it's hard to even feel like there's a bridge there but Mm -hmm. I want to give them a sense of like if they haven't heard if they don't know like what even compelled you to want to look into all this what was it that you were going through that you were potentially like suffering a little from in your own day to day, your absence of as much well-being as you wanted that, that made it like, okay, I have to kind of like stop everything I'm doing and focus on this. Well, it was again, a very ordinary moment in my life where I had an epiphany. I mean, I I'm very subject to epiphany, which is one of my favorite things about myself. So in this case, I was just finishing up my book, 40 ways to look at JFK And in those days, when you were done writing a book, there was kind of this period where you were done with the book as the author, but it hadn't hit the shelves yet. So there was kind of this period where you didn't have much to do. So I kind of had more mental bandwidth than I'd had in a while. And I was stuck on a city bus in the pouring rain. And I had one of these moments of reflection that sometimes it's hard to have kind of in just the busyness of everyday life. You don't sort of step back and ask big questions, or at least I don't. And so I thought, I asked myself, well, what do I want from life anyway? And I thought, well, I want to be happy. And I thought, yeah, but I don't spend any time thinking about, could I be happier? Am I happy? I don't even know what is happiness anyway. And instantly I was like, I should have a happiness project. And I ran to the library the next day, got this giant stack of books of like memoirs and science and philosophy and history, just to try to understand, like, how do I understand how to think about happiness? And I just was enthralled with this material, but I was just doing it for me. This was just something that I was doing kind of as a side. And I often will do this. I'll get really interested in something and I'll do a huge amount of research and note taking. And then it just kind of comes to an end. But this just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally I thought, wow, maybe this should be my next book project. And because my first realization was I should have a happiness project. That was always the name was the happiness project. And I think I was typical of a lot of people where I wasn't coming from a place of deep unhappiness. I mean, in a way, I knew that I could be happier. And part of what I really wanted to address was this feeling that I was taking too much for granted, that I had all the elements of a happy life. And yet I would get bogged down in sort of my trivial annoyances or my petty grudges or grievances. And I just wasn't having this sort of transcendent perspective and really appreciating everything that I had. 
and again, it's like so often we don't appreciate something until we lose it or we're threatened with losing it. And I thought, I don't want that to happen. I want to appreciate it right now, uh, but I need to do it in a very systematic way. That's the kind of person I am. I'm like, I need to make lists. I need to make checklists. I need yeah. to crystallize this. I need to distill all this information into a scheme, into a project. <laughs> so that's how I did it. And I, you know, I think that's one thing that people relate to, which is like, I was pretty happy. But I wasn't as happy as I could be. And I think we we want to aim to be as happy as we can be under the circumstances and given our nature. But in normal circumstances, I think it's it's good to try to be as happy as we can be. And I felt like I had a lot of, again, low-hanging fruit. I'm always looking for the low-hanging fruit. And yes. there always is, there always is a lot, I find. It's so beautiful, the whole story that you laid out. And I love this moment of you on the city bus, and then you finally have a little more bandwidth. And you ask yourself a question, which leads you to give yourself an answer, which becomes a movement. It's just amazing how right there, there's gold if you actually have the space to be there, right? Mm -hmm. Like because you were a little bit more present, you were reflective in a way that you weren't when you were really busy writing that other book on JFK. It's just, that's another reason to be present is the, the gold and the treasures that occur to you, which take you on the most incredible journeys. But in in being on this journey and talking to you, I'm sure it's been thousands and thousands and thousands of people. What have you noticed is one of the main reasons why people are unhappy? And what have you noticed seems to be the low-hanging fruit that starts to make them feel happier? You know, in the end, the most important thing to our happiness is strong relationships. That's how we're wired as human beings. We need to have intimate, enduring bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We have to be able to confide and we need to be able to get support, but just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. And a lot of times when I talk to people, it's because they feel isolated. You know, one, if you ask somebody if they're happy at work, one of the strongest indicators of somebody being happy at work is that they have a friend at work, which is not just somebody that you like have fun talking to by the water cooler, but this is somebody where you feel like this person has my back. I could confide an important secret to this person. And so, you know, maybe you don't have that person. Maybe you're working remotely. And so you're feeling kind of detached from your whole team. Maybe you've moved to a new city as an adult and it's hard as an adult to make friends. Maybe you're experiencing like conflict with somebody who's important in your life. And that is very often a source of unhappiness. You know, like I don't have enough friends or like maybe something happened where like all my friends got married and have little kids. And so they don't have time for me the way they used to. I know they still love me, but like we're not hanging out the way we used to. And now I feel left out. And, you know, so there's all different ways that this comes up. Yeah. But I do think that, I mean, there's a huge amount of research right now into loneliness and like the terrible mental health and even physical health consequences that come from loneliness. And so people were to me like, well, what's one thing I should do? I'm like, anything that you can do to deepen relationships or broaden relationships is likely to make you feel happier. And that's one of the things I loved about the five senses is like the five senses give us a great way to connect with other people. Because when you're experiencing something through your senses, it draws people together. Even if you're walking around a museum, like there's yeah. just kind of this feeling that everybody, like we're all here together. It creates this sort of companionship atmosphere that I find to be very pleasant, even apart from the art. I just like, you know, the atmosphere of being in the Met but this happens at a concert. It can happen in a drugstore when like some song comes over the thing and everybody's like, I love this song. You know, have you ever been in line where everybody's like, oh, this of is course. such a great song. Of and it's course. such it's a shared moment of just fellow feeling. 
because even these kind of very glancing encounters with other people can make us happier. But of course, it's really those deep, enduring bonds that are the most important. So I would say if you're going to start anywhere, I would start there. It can be challenging. Yeah, in other books, I've written a lot about what do you do if you're trying to make friends as an adult? Because it's one of the most common complaints about happiness that people have, or the most common challenges, I should right, say, right. is it's, making friends as an adult. It's fascinating because years ago, I mean, people didn't spend the money and the time to research these things. And now over time, we have a lot of data. And yeah. what you're saying, Bob Waldinger was here a few weeks ago and talking about one of the longest studies ever on happiness, which turns out it is in fact what you're saying. It's about yeah. the relationships. And so I'm going to double down on that and ask you Ooh. this question. I wasn't thinking that today I was going to ask you this, but I have to ask you because so many things line up to point to, let me ask her this question. You know, I said to you that most of our audience, 94% of our audience is women. And most of them, when I talk to them, they want to have a happier marriage. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. I was talking to a friend this morning. She and I are actually writing a play together. And one of the main themes in this play is the two people in this marriage having a stronger attachment. And one of the characters who's loosely based on me (laughs) has like avoidant attachment from a childhood of whatever, you know, some divorce and some abandonment and stuff like that. And I just was talking to my, this writer I'm working with. And she said, listen, even other people who don't have that after a while, she goes, she used this example. She goes, if you went on a date with Harry Connick Jr., it would be great. And even then three months later, he's going to say, what kind of lettuce do you want me to pick up from the grocery store? And you're going to have to work on it. She's like, it's just over and over. It doesn't matter really. And I said, oh my God, it's so true. And so you said before my husband, this is a beautiful line, became like the wallpaper, you know? Mm -hmm. And if this is really true, I feel like this is crucial. And I'm sure you've had this thought and I'm sure you've had this conversation. What do you think are some of the things that make that relationship better? Well, I think part of it is noticing. It's like tuning in and not taking the person for granted. Like one of the most interesting exercises I did for the Five Senses book is I did a Five Senses portrait of my husband, Jamie. So just like, what are my most vivid sight memories of him or sight associations that I went through all? So I did five associations for each sense. So I came up with a list of 25. And it was actually challenging, super creative, super interesting, and very interesting to see what it kicked up. And it also helped me really just see him more clearly. And what I found is that when you really look, when you look at the outer person, you get a window into the inner person or just looking around. Like I realized that just like morning after morning, I'm always the first one up. I had been seeing that there was like this peanut butter covered spoon out on the kitchen counter. And I would just <laughs> I be like, no, no, and I'd just be like, why can nobody like rinse off a peanut butter covered spoon, whatever, put it in the dishwasher. And then finally I was like, why is that? let me see this as like a clue instead of just not really thinking about it. Because what I know is that my husband, if he gets up in the middle of the night, that's his like favorite midnight snack. And so what this was telling me is that he wasn't sleeping well. And so I went to him and I'm like, do you have something on your mind? Because it looks like you're not sleeping well. And he's like, well, as a matter of fact, like, yeah, I have this really difficult work problem, which, you know, how you have something and you don't really feel like talking about it. And then somebody asks you about it and you're like, actually, I would like to talk about that for like two hours. And that's what it was. But I had, I didn't see it. I wasn't thinking through. So I think that just tuning into the person's physical presence, whether it's through your memories, like me remembering like what he was wearing the first time we met, which is like emblazoned in my mind, or just today, 
and through the five senses, it makes that very vivid. I think another one is to just try to understand like what are the points of frequent conflict and see if you can manage those. I think that one of the reasons that my husband and I have a harmonious relationship is we both agree that you need to get to the airport really early. And it's always like, should we go or do we not need to go? And then my husband's always like, well, we could just go there and just read just as easily in the air at the airport. Why don't we go ahead and go? And I'm like, yes, let's go ahead and go. And that is like, you know, sometimes they're just these little things. A friend of mine, in fact, just yesterday was telling me that when she got married, she wrote on a piece of paper because she's a late leaver and her fiance was an early leaver, right? That's always the conflict. So she, the first year of her marriage, she wrote on a piece of paper, I will leave for the airport whenever you want. And she wrapped it up and gave it to him. And she said, (laughs) that was the costliest gift that she ever gave. It took the most out of her. But she also said that it took so much stress away because they never argued about it. And she just was like, whatever you want. So she just didn't even think about it. She's just like, not my problem. I'll do what you want. And so she said it It was hard, but in a way it was easy. And I thought, oh, that's so great. But of course, that's kind of a pretty superficial example. There's a lot of, there's a much more deep conflict. I do think, you know, one of the things that I've noticed just in setting happiness is there is this tendency for us to think that whatever works for us will work for other people. And if we're doing something, it's kind of the right way to do it. And uh, if something is fun for us, it's fun for other people. And so it's very easy to get into arguments about, well, what's the right way to do it rather than saying, well, I have a preference and you have a preference. So how do we create an environment where we both can thrive? So let's take making your bed. I make my bed every day. I make my bed in a hotel room when on the morning I check out. I like to have a bed. And fortunately for me, my husband is the same, but I know many people where one person is like, why bother to make the bed? Because you just unmake it the next night. It's a big waste of time. Or maybe like, oh, there's mites in there and you need to air out the bed. Like they got all these reasons. And the fact is, there's no magic in making your bed. I like making my bed. But if I march around saying like, you should make your bed or it's better to make your bed or it's more efficient to make your bed. It's like, no, bake your bed or don't make your bed. And if we disagree, how do we create a situation where both of us can feel comfortable? But if you're arguing, I'm right, you're wrong. You can go round and round and round on that for years. Yeah. You know, how organized should things be? Some people are like, they need to be very organized. People are like, we don't need to organize them at all. It's like, let's talk about this as a matter of preferences rather than a matter of right and wrong. Right. Yeah, that's extremely helpful. And it's so bold that that woman gave her husband this slip. Isn't said, that oh, just the greatest it's idea? Great. It's I crazy. love gifts like that, that are like unconventional gifts. I have of another course. friend. And I'm exactly like this. If a light bulb goes out, I'm like, oh, now we learn to live without a hall light bulb. You know, it takes me like two years. To, that would to, drive me crazy. Yeah. Okay, to take me married to you. Okay, good. <laughs> all right. Um, but so my friend was like that. She lived in a brown stand in Brooklyn. So they had a lot of lights. And so for her birthday, for my friend's birthday, she was out of town for the weekend. So this friend came over and replaced all the burned out light bulbs. And so my friend came home and they were all replaced. It was amazing. And then like a week later, she opened up a closet and realized not only had her friend replaced all those light bulbs, she had bought like five extra of all. And she had a lot of like, Uh, you know, those light bulbs where you have to go to the hardware store. Yeah, you can't even just go to the grocery store. She said it was the most amazing gift she ever had. And it also really showed, again, like 
I see you. I notice yeah. you. I know what you need. Yeah. And like, I'll just come take care of this. For some people, that's like super thrilling. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, talk about low hanging fruit. And you're going to make this. So anyway, I think that sometimes you can look for these ways to say, how do we find a way for us both to thrive instead of arguing about it's either my way or your way. Right. And I love the story you told about the peanut butter spoon. And I think it's so beautiful what actually came out of that and how you, mm. the fact that you were aware and you could pause led to, you know, a place where he really needed somebody and to see it through the other lens is like, oh my gosh, like she's not seeing that. That's actually not nice. And I remember thinking this thought, which at the time it felt like such an inappropriate thought, but I wound up understanding it later on, which was that two years ago when my mother-in-law passed away, we were sitting Shiva for her as my husband's mom. And I've never thank God, you know, at least up to, I never sat Shiva for anybody. Like I've gone to visit people and Shiva for people who are listening, who don't know, it's like a custom in a Jewish home where you for seven days just kind of really stop doing anything. Just, just be a witness to the pain and be there for the people who are grieving. So I remember having this thought that I was more in love with him and happier with him than ever. And that I actually really felt peace. And I realized it was because I had given him a get out of jail free card on everything. I basically had taken that week to just notice him. I Mm -hmm. took a whole week to be like, I don't care if he does X, Y, and Z. Right. I just want to make sure like that he ate. I want to make sure that, you know, this was during COVID. So the the Shiva meetings were on Zoom, but even then are the right people getting into the Zoom room? How is he? You know, the rabbi would come over like, does he have food? Like I was the best version of myself. And what I'm saying is like, I think sometimes my own unhappiness comes from not noticing the other person Mm -hmm. more from like, well, I do so much anyway. We have three kids, you know, I'm the breadwinner. I'm so busy. And then it's like, get off your high horse for a second. And I think that's just such a beautiful example of what you gave. And it's reminding me of, I don't even know if I've ever talked about that, but that was like a very odd and yet very beautiful thing. And it was the truth. I felt a lot of sadness, but also a lot of meaning and a lot of happiness in being free from criticizing him for a whole week. It was powerful. That is so fascinating. And I wonder if you could even do that for like someone's birthday, give them a week where like (laughs) you have no, you have no expectations for them. It's like, you don't have to do any errands. You don't have to do your customary chores and tasks. I'm going to let you have your way just as an experiment and being like, what happens if I just like go of all that, that kind of the minor conflicts and tensions and like my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. Why didn't you, why did you all that? Right. That's so interesting, though, that in um, the midst of all that pain and grief, like you really had this deep insight into your relationship. That's so interesting. It was so interesting. (laughs) And I shared it with him later on. And I said, I hope this doesn't come across weird. He's like, no, I I really get it. And I got it that week. I felt. Oh, he did. So he did notice. That's interesting. He said, I felt so nurtured and like it was beautiful. Anyways, one of the things that I noticed that I do, and I'm just curious in your own, you know, looking at happiness and speaking to people, if you've seen this, which is that, that the grass is always greener. I feel like, you know, my dad's been married a few times. My parents have been divorced since I was a kid. That is very much for my parents. That is a card that you can play. And so my parents, like, they're not the people, like if I'm ever upset with him, you don't call my parents because they'd be Mm. like, Oh my God, you know how many people are out there in the world? Like, 
It is like, oh. you, just like you change a purse, you can change a spouse. And so wow. one of my struggles is like when I'm upset or when I'm not feeling like enough spark or I'm not, I, in my mind go to what other life could I be living? Where else could right. I be? Right. Which is so crazy making. It's, it's probably the most crazy making thing. Meanwhile, my husband is like the sweetest, kindest person. He made me the smoothie this morning. He's always asking, what do I need? He's sweet. He's smart. He's cute. Like, and I, I'm the child of a lot of modeling, which really points to the exit door all the time. And so I know that that's a thing for people. I know that, you know, my sister's single and this feeling of like, well, there could be somebody else Two of my Mm -hmm. friends who live in New York city. They're like, the problem with New York city is there's so many options Mm -hmm. and like, there's another person, there's another person. So that's the paradox of choice, so many options. You make no choice. Right. So in situations where people are unhappy because they're asking themselves this insidious question, like, well, could you be happier? It's like, the answer to that is always like, there's never going to be a time where you're like, no. And yet it just, I think it's really crazy making. So I'm curious if you've seen this as a pattern in other Mm. people who've spoken to you, if you've seen this in your research and how the hell do you get out of it? Because it's the perfect way for my brain to just turn the music off in my life. Like everything's Mm. great. So it's like, oh, I'll find a way to make you so sad. I'll Mm. have you think this thought. Mm, Interesting. Well, my sister has this funny thing she says. So her husband's name is Adam. So her mantra is, if not Adam, someone exactly like Adam. Meaning if she were going to divorce and marry somebody else, she'd pick somebody (laughs) just like Adam. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'll stick with the Adam I got, you know? And so part of it is just, yeah, like you said at the beginning, people are people. Like you never have that like first rush for a whole life. Like that wouldn't be even desirable to have that first, you know, falling in love fog. But yeah, I mean, I do, I think it is hard to have that because it's very well established that when there's a lot of choice, like there's this very, very, I'm sure you've seen it, this very famous research where they had like jam in a grocery store. And when there were like four kinds of jam, people would pick one. But when there are like 14 kinds of jam, people couldn't pick because there were just too many choices to manage. Hmm. And there's also something, the difference between maximizers and satisficers. Now, I've never thought about this in the context of like romantic relationships, but generally what the difference is, is maximizers are people who want to make the best possible choice. They want to like look all around and like make the best choice. Satisficers will take criteria. And as soon as something meets their criteria, they will act. So they might have very high standards, but once they encounter something that meets those standards, they don't feel like they have to keep looking. So for instance, let's say I want to buy a bicycle. I might say like, well, these are the five things I care about. And the minute I find them, I'm like, I'm going to buy it. Whereas a max, because I'm a satisficer, but then a maximizer would be like, well, it has these five things, but maybe I could also get those five things plus these other five things if I keep looking and looking and looking. The funny thing about it is, is that the people who are satisficers are more satisfied with their decisions and they have less regret and second guessing later than the maximizers. Which is a little surprising because you would think, well, the maximizers put so much more kind of diligence into it. You think they would be very happy. But in fact, no, it can create a lot of regret. And in that kind of related research shows that when people can have like backseas, when they feel like they can remake a choice, they tend to be less happy with their choices. They did a famous study with like, I think it was posters with college students. It was like, here's a free poster, take it and be done with you. Or they would say, take (laughs) the poster. And if you change your mind, you can come back and exchange it. The people who were like, take it and be done with it were happier with their poster and felt more confident in their choice than the people who were given 
kind of a chance. And, and so maybe you're kind of getting caught in that, which is like, well, maybe I should exchange this pair of shoes for another pair of shoes. I don't know about this pair of shoes. It's like, if you're like, oh, this is the pair of shoes I got. So part of that, but it's very complicated. These things are very, very complicated. As you say, they're tied to our history, our experience, our upbringing. And of course, it's we're not in isolation. We're, we're also in the context of somebody else and everything they've got going on. We're in a family structure and our friends, like it's a lot, it's a lot going on. That is such powerful research about the satisfizer and the maximizer. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, the actual, I'm realizing as you're saying that the decisions that have been so seminal in my life that have moved my life along in the ways that have felt like the most enriching, I make the decision based on, okay, does this meet the qualifications? Let's go. And having that decisiveness is what has allowed me such beauty, right? And it's in the moments, you know, during COVID, I felt that way a little bit because we we sold our house in LA and then we went on this like quest to like find a place. And Mm -hmm. since my husband was no longer doing law and we had switched roles and I was now the breadwinner and the podcast is doing us all these favors and I can do it from anywhere. It was hell. It was actual hell. It was like, do you want to move to Nashville? Austin, New Hampshire, Atlanta, Charleston. We were in Charleston with a realtor for two days going, this is a pretty cute place. And I had a panic attack. I was like, I don't know where to go. Like, I can't stand this. Like there was a beauty to like, my husband used to be in-house counsel at Fox Sports. We used to live in LA. We had to live within a few miles because traffic and noise. There was something so peaceful about it. I was like, I know who I am. I know where I go. All of a sudden it's like, you can live anywhere. No, it's too much. It's like, right. Necessity is very clarifying because you're like, we have to, so we'll make the best of it. And that's very different. I I completely agree. It's overwhelming because the factors that you could take into account are, you know, so overwhelming. So overwhelming. I don't know that it would work for that particular thing because the choices are so many, but here's something that you can do if you're basically faced with an apple and an orange where like, cause a lot of times you have a really big decision and it's sort of like, the pros and the cons exactly match up. And you're like, I don't know how I'm going to make this decision. And just to take a small example, in my family, we face this with, should we get a dog? My daughters really wanted to get a dog. My husband was like, it's fine with me. And I was like, there's so many reasons not to get a dog. It's so much hassle. It's so much time. <laughs> I don't feel like dealing with it, whatever. So what do you do? Because the pros and the cons seemed equally weighted. And yet it was kind of an apple and an orange. And yet it was a huge decision. I was like, if we get a dog, we're going to be living with this dog longer than we lived with either one of our daughters. This is a big commitment. It just felt <laughs> overwhelming to me. So what I said was, well, let's choose the bigger life. And for us, and I was like, instantly it was clear for us, the bigger life was to get the dog. And I think for other people, the bigger life might've been not to get a dog. Cause it's like, I'll use this money in other ways. I want to travel and be free. I don't want this responsibility. I can get a dog later. Now is not the time. The bigger life is not to have a dog. But it was obvious for my family, the bigger life was to get the dog. So we did get the dog. That was the deal. That made the decision clear for me. We got the dog. And I'm so incredibly happy that we got the dog. But sometimes when you're really caught with that apple and orange decision, that can be very clear. And I remember because you're talking about um, where to live. I remember talking to somebody where she was like, on the one hand, if we move to this big city, maybe we'll have more career opportunities. We love culture. And like, you know, it's like exciting to be in a big metropolitan area. But if we live in this smaller town, like that's where we're both from, we have all this family, these friends that we you know, grew up with, and we can't decide. And I said, we'll choose the bigger life, which is the bigger life. And in a flash, she said, the bigger life for us is to move back to our hometown. And again, that would not be what everybody would decide. Some people might be like, oh my gosh, for us, the bigger life is to move to the bigger city. So that's why I like it, because it's like only you know the bigger life for you. 
it's not something where it's like you can plug it in and it will give everybody the same answer because that doesn't make any sense. We're all so different. You have to have the answer that's right for you. And for some reason, thinking about that it that way often seems to help people have a different a clarifying perspective on something that they're really hung up on. It's so true. Um, my, my sister at one point was trying to decide if she was going to stay at NYU during college or transfer to a state school because my parents were getting divorced mm-hmm. and she was talking to a friend and he said, I'm going to do a f- twin cost heads. You're going to stay at NYU. You're going to figure out financial aid for yourself and tails. You're going to go to a state school. So he throws it in the air, puts it on his hand. He, you know, his hand is still covering it. And she goes, okay, what is it? And he goes, what do you want it to be? <gasps> oh, she said, no, no, just tell me what it is. And he takes it and he like puts it in his drawer. So she couldn't even tell anymore because he had like thrown it down inside the drawer. And she goes, why did you do that? I want to know what it is. And he goes, what did you want it to be? And she started to cry. She goes, I want it to be the state NYU. And he goes, so that's what you do. You say NYU because it doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. That's That's so great. Because sometimes you just have to have these like indirect views into your own mind. Like you can't look squarely at it. There's too much noise and interference, but these indirect ways, oh, that's a brilliant idea. I love that. What do you want it to be? What are you hoping for? I love how much fun this was and how you are both such a good person being organized and structured, but you also allowed for this conversation to go into like unknown places, which I wasn't even sure it was going, but it was so much <laughs> It's just so much fun. So tell everybody when and where they can get the book. And then as far as like your podcast, listening to your podcast, like where they can find you and follow along. So the best place to find everything is my website, GretchenRubin.com. And there you can find more information about my books, my older books, and also my new book, Life in Five Senses. There's book excerpts, you know, reading group guides, all kinds of free resources that I've created over the years. It's all there. I just created a neglected sense quiz. It's a quiz that is very quick and free and it will tell you like which of your five senses is the one that you kind of are the least tapped into. So that's again, low hanging fruit. It'll tell you like, oh, go to your most neglected sense because you probably have a lot of things that you can do with it to make your life richer and more fun. I just launched that. So that's super fun. And then my podcast is called Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And each week, my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, she's a Hollywood showrunner, and I talk about sort of the practical ways you can think about happiness in everyday life. And we talk a lot about our own experiences and hacks and strategies and try this at home ideas. And so that's Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And then I'm on social media as Gretchen Rubin. And I love to connect with listeners and readers. And I feel like the world is my research assistant. I get so many like ideas and observations and questions and resources people send me. So go to GretchenRubin.com and that will lead you to everything else and um, hit me up on social media. I'd love to hear from people. Ah, so fun. What a great conversation. I really enjoyed every bit of it. Thank you so much. We will put the links in the show notes, obviously, to your site and to your book and on your new book and all that stuff. Well, thank you so much. I so enjoyed it. I feel like we could talk all day. I know. That was so much fun. It's always fun talking with her. All right, here are the takeaways. Number one, the five senses can be the path to this richer, deeper appreciation for everything that we take for granted. Number two, stop and look. The more you look, the more you see, the more you know, the more you notice. There's gold if you actually have the space to be there. Number three, 
Lean into the mundane moment. You can find equanimity in a moment where you're present. Number four, enjoy the process. Don't wait for the ending or the outcome. Have fun while it's happening. Number five, it's good to try to be as happy as we can be. Number six, the most important thing to our happiness is strong relationships. We need to have intimate, enduring bonds. We need to feel like we belong. We have to be able to confide. We need to be able to get support. But just as important for happiness, we need to be able to give support. Number seven, choose the bigger life. Only you have the answer that's right for you. Thank you so much for listening. I know that you have so much going on. Life can be so busy. I want to let you know that we have so many good episodes coming up. Next week, Rain Wilson will be back. Plus, I'm interviewing Jason Mraz again. So stay tuned for that. We have so many good episodes coming and good conversations. If you don't want to miss out, please make sure that you subscribe and follow along on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening. And if you want to support us, the best way to do that is to share the show. You can email someone the link or text them the link, obviously, or you could leave us a review because that helps more than you could possibly know. If you think that there's somebody who would appreciate this episode or any one of the episodes, please send them the link because it means so much. And finally, my program is available right now on pre-sale. If you want to coach with me for three months, if you want to start to change your life in such a major way, if you want to find the power that has always been within you and turn it on so that you start to see your life being a reflection of an inner world that is congruent and peaceful and resonant with who you really are, you might want to check out Abundant Ever After. If you go to kathyheller.com slash join, it is on pre-sale until Friday. I love you. I'll leave you with a song. Have a great weekend. Subway cars filled with tiny souls. Some are young and some of them are old. Saddest faces you have ever seen. How can we sad each other free? Searching for some kind